0: Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove podcast network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast.
1: Let's face it, today's NASCAR Cup Series is much different than what we've enjoyed 30 40 or even 50 years ago that comes with any sport or anything we do for that matter change is inevitable it's called growth and it's called moving forward it's no surprise drivers then were from a much different place in those days from a much simpler time raised differently than the drivers of today in many respects it was a good time that offered its own positives its own unique chapters of motorsports history. Bobby Allison, Donnie Allison, Cale Yarborough, Richard Petty, David Pearson, Benny Parsons, just to name a few, they all came from very humble beginnings and worked their way into successful motorsports stardom, and even though they became quite famous, they were still very much down-to-earth, everyday people that enjoyed talking with their fans anytime they had the chance to do so. On countless occasions, Bobby Allison and Richard Petty would win a 500 mile race at, say, Atlanta or Talladega or Daytona, and then they'd stay until after dark and sign hundreds of autographs until the very last person got their signature on a hat, race program, or hero card, not because they had to, because they wanted to. There would even be times when drivers would flag down a media member walking through a garage area and say, hey, I have a feature idea for you. Think that would happen today? Not likely. And the stories those guys could tell, funny stories, interesting stories, enlightening stories, the ones that really happened on the way to the track or things that happened at the track or in some cases, things that happened on the track. Hilarious stories that would never happen again and could only have happened in the 60s or 70s or maybe in the 80s in that era of racing because it was in that era of racing with those drivers in those race cars. Sadly, that's really, truly what's missing in today's Cup Series. There are no funny stories. There is no real camaraderie among drivers. It's racing for wins and points. Everyone goes home. There's nothing or no one for fans to relate to. Not only a personal level, it's too corporate. It's too polished. It's too structured. But when the Allisons, Yarborough, Petty, Pearson, Parsons, again, to name only a few, were there, there was fun among them, jokes, laughter, sharing, and hard racing for wins and championships when there had to be. Their personalities shined as brightly as the cars they raced. Many of them are gone now, but their accomplishments and their interesting quips live on through features, books, and if we're lucky, audio and video clips that were captured somewhere along the way. Drivers displayed their incredible personalities in the different era of NASCAR's past.
2: Hey, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. I'm Jerry Bunkowski, along with my good buddy, Ben White, and we have a special guest on today's show, Mike Embry from NBCSports.com and the proud uh, author of a brand new book, co-author of a brand new book. Uh, Mike, first of all, thanks very much for joining us. And tell us about the new book. Uh, you, joined, you wrote it with, uh, in conjunction with another veteran writer, Al Pierce. Tell us about the book. Let's start off with that first.
3: Yeah, thank you, guys. It's called 50 First Victories. It's uh, about NASCAR drivers and their, oddly enough, their first victories. Uh, from Richard Petty to Dale Earnhardt to Earnhardt Jr., Jeff Gordon, Jimmy Johnson, guys back in the 50s, Fireball Roberts. uh, Essentially one story per driver about their first win, how it impacted their careers, how it happened, what happened in the aftermath. Al and I both uh, covered the first Indianapolis 500 in 1913, so, you know, we've got (laughs) got a lot of years in the sport uh, of of motorsports in general. So we put all this stuff together. Um, <clears throat> I've already told Al that if anybody finds any mistakes in the book, they were in the stories that he wrote, not <laughs> not that I wrote. So, good answer. So it's, uh, I think it's a pretty good, pretty good job. Al and I have both done some other racing books, but this one, this one kind of serves to be a, a history of NASCAR written through those those first driver wins.
2: Hmm. Come on, is, uh,
3: Bob, how'd you come about that idea? We had done some stories. Uh, uh, along the same line for auto week and uh, an editor there said hey this these would be good in a book and uh, we agreed and put the put the plan together and uh, and it happened it took a year or so to put it all together but uh, but came out
1: recently yeah and you said "Eureka! what a what a great idea but uh, it is a great idea actually because you know there are times you sit and think okay, where did Richard Petty win his first race, where did Bobby Allison win his first race, et cetera. And, and you just, you, so you go back to the books and you look, but you've compiled these together and it's a, it's an excellent idea. And I kudos to both of you. So, and by the way, um, Mike Embry, Al Pierce, two of the great veterans of NASCAR writing and, uh, NASCAR motorsports, and two of the very best writers in the business. So congratulations on the book. Thank you. Thank you. And obviously, we've got to ask you where can folks get the book?
3: It's published by Octane Press, octanepress.com, or uh, should be available wherever great books are sold uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, et cetera, et cetera. So, should be out there everywhere. I, I, you know, Mike, you know, we've known, all of us have known each other for uh,
2: quite some time. I, I get the sense this was almost like a labor of love for you guys.
3: Yeah, it was fun going back through uh, some of those memories. You know, some of the some of the people we write about, uh, obviously, we never knew and we weren't there when they got their first win. Uh, Jim Roper, for example, winning mm-hmm. the very first race in 1949. But Alan and I have covered, uh, uh, you know, all the greats from the mid 70s forward: uh, Petty, Pearson, Daryl Waltrip, uh, both Earnhardt's the Allison's just a, you know, a long list. And, uh, some of the things that had happened over those years, I, I'd kind of forgotten until, uh, started digging back through the files. And fortunately or unfortunately I've kept really good files over the years. So, uh, a lot of that stuff I had on hand, I just had to kind of dig it out, uh, from old interviews and, and so forth. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was fun putting all of that, all that together and, and remembering some of those things again.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, looking back, for instance, you, you brought up Jim Roper. I mean, just very quickly, the man drives his Lincoln, a black Lincoln, of all things, from Kansas, uh, and comes to Charlotte. And the reason he knew about NASCAR to begin first is a comic strip that he read, and drives all the way from Kansas to Charlotte. Finishes second to, to Glenn Dunaway. Dunaway's car carries leaves Springs. He uh, is disqualified, uh, wins Roper wins the race, takes the $2,000 and goes back to Kansas, a happy man. And, you know, and you think, well, gosh, I mean, where? and people do, by the way, mistake the Charlotte racetrack, Charlotte speedway with Charlotte motor speedway, two totally different racetracks in two totally different locations, one was a dirt track. One of course is the 1.5 mile, uh, asphalt track that so many great winds have come on and course, Jim Roper, and I had the honor of meeting Jim Roper, actually at North Wilkesboro Speedway in 1990. Uh, I think he was in his, uh, mid eighties at the time and very nice gentleman and had the honor of winning that first one. And, uh, in a Cadillac or a, uh, Lincoln, excuse me, of all t- of all things. And you just don't think about those first victories until, like I said before, you just sit down and think, Hmm, where was this one? Where was that one? So it's great, Mike, that you and Al have put that together, and a great reference for all of us to maybe look back on someday.
3: Yeah, let me let me mention one of those uh, stories quickly, which I early didn't know about until recently. Uh, Benny Parsons' first win was at uh, South Boston, Virginia, and it was on Mother's Day, so his kids were not there; they were home with mom. And of course, after the race, Benny calls home to say, "Hey." <laughs> I wanna I wanna race. And his younger son, I think was about 4 then, and his first question to Benny was, "Okay, was Richard Petty there?" <laughs> because he, he knew Petty won like, you know, every every other week or something back then. And he he had been telling his father prior to that that Benny had was really successful in ARCA racing. And he wanted Benny to go back to Arca so he would win all the time. And, you know, he could, he and the kids could be in victory lane. He was uh, a little bit sad that Benny had not won yet in, uh, in cup racing. So that opened the door for Benny though, who both you guys know was just a sensational racer and more than that, a, a great person to yes. be around just
1: one, yeah, of, one of the all timers. Yeah. And the, and the correct response for Benny was Richard, Richard who? <laughs> well, Richard finished
3: second, so yeah, you know, there, there you go.
1: Yeah,
2: for sure. Well, was there? I mean, what was the biggest challenge? I mean, was there maybe like, uh, you know, uh, you know, writing the book was it maybe guys that had already passed on that you had never interviewed? I mean, what was the the biggest challenge
3: you faced with writing the book with Al? Uh, working with Al, probably the <laughs> biggest. <laughs> <laughs> uh No, just kidding. Um, well, it was kind of a uh, first of all, deciding which fifty you're going to go with. you know we, we couldn't use everybody. We tried to pick the uh, the most historic wins, obviously the very first race with roper winning that that had to be in there, even though, and I had talked to I'd never met him, but I'd interview him on the phone, so I had some information and some and some quotes from him. Um, we wanted to get the really big names, um, uh, Mario Andretti who won the Daytona 500 was, was not a NASCAR regular, but any chance you have of putting Mario Andretti in a book you're doing, bam, you know, you do that. Mario, one of the, one of the all-time greats, uh, who could drive anything, anywhere, anytime for anybody. Um, and when you start talking about the guys who won so much, Richard Petty, Pearson, Kale, Earnhardt, um, it's kind of picking out what you're going to use and what you're not. Obviously, each story was about the first win, but you want to miss another things in there about the drivers too. So it's kind of pick and choose about what information you used and, and, uh, and what the focus might be. It, you know, it was a case of, it's a good case for riders of having far too much information. We just had to kind of whittle it down to what was best. Right, right. Well, gentlemen, uh, first of all, uh, Mike, obviously, I wish you and L the best of luck in the
2: sales in the book. Uh, I can already tell you, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it and uh, a great topic, obviously. So, uh, But, you know, let's talk about some of the, I'm sure some of the stories that are in the book, we, we're probably going to talk about uh, in on today's show uh, about the 70s and 80s, uh, pretty much the what some people would consider the golden years of NASCAR. I mean, certainly we could talk about, you know, the late 40s into the 50s and 60s, but it almost seemed like it's the seventies and the eighties were when NASCAR really uh, came into its own, if you will. I mean, before it was, you know, primarily a Southeastern sport and then it became, started going nationally. We had obviously you had the big uh, race in 1979, the Daytona 500 that was uh, televised live nationally. That was uh, uh, such a watershed mark for the sport. Uh, let's, let's talk about the, the mid uh, start. Well, let's start with seventies and then into the eighties. I mean, we would always talk about you know Richard Petty being the star of the 70s which obviously was the case but um you know there was just so many guys let's let's start with uh, Mike on this one Mike can you kind of quantify in your opinion what the 70s meant to you as both a right racing writer but also as a racing fan as well too
3: yeah um it's kind of a long story um I really was not a racing fan uh, prior to covering it in uh, the spring of 1975. the The guy who covered auto racing for the paper where I was working then, the Spartanburg uh, Herald Journal in South Carolina, David Pearson's home, mm-hmm. where I also grew up. Um, uh, that guy left the paper, and I was called in the next day and told that, "Hey, you're you're an auto racing writer now." Mm-hmm and uh, never been to a NASCAR race. I'd been to a couple of dirt tracks, you know, when I was a kid, but never been to a NASCAR race. I hadn't watched many on television. So I was kind of dragged into it kicking and screaming. Uh, showed up at Atlanta for the spring race that year, uh, not, really, not really knowing anybody except a few of the riders. Um, so, um, Walked into the garage, I guess it was Thursday or Friday of race week. And, and uh, of course, I had to develop a relationship with David Pearson because he's my hometown guy. I knew I was going to be writing about him a lot. So I walked up to him and introduced myself and told him that I was replacing the previous guy. And I wanted to talk to him in a few minutes. And he said, sorry, I can't talk to you until you've been around a while and know what you're doing. <laughs> Great. And uh, he, he turned around and walked away. And then he turned around and came back and said, eh, Just kidding. You know, uh, come back in about an hour after practice or whatever. And we'll talk as long as you want. Mm-hmm. And um, talked to Benny Parsons that day, who was just as kind and patient with me and my dumb questions as anybody you could hope for. Um, Richard Petty, of course, won the race. <laughs> So I considered that to be normal, um, but I was um, uneasy enough about what I wrote that I showed it to a couple of the other guys, the, the veteran writers, to be sure I had not really screwed something up. Um, so I got through that first weekend, and it was it was okay. After that, um, you know, you guys know how you build relationships with drivers, and and uh, it, it was a lot. That part was a lot easier then because you could wander through the garage on any particular day and, and walk up to a driver standing behind his truck and talk to him for 30 minutes without making an appointment with somebody to do it. Mm-hmm. So a lot easier to get to know the guys back then. And, and they're, and they had had more time to tell you their stories and, uh, and so forth. It was, it was a good time to, to jump in the sport and also a good time competitively to do it because, uh, Petty and Pearson, you know, were the two giants of the sport back then, and they were, they were finishing one, two, back and forth, back and forth. I think they finished overall one and two 63 times, and the Petty fans don't like for you to say that Pearson was first 33 of those 63 times.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: But yeah. um, just watching those guys do what they did, over that period what was phenomenal especially for somebody just stepping into the whole thing new you know the first time i went to talladega i was just i drove in that tunnel and they were practicing and the whole field roared past me as i was driving through there and it it shocked me that (laughs) that cars could go that fast that close together Mm -hmm. you know Um, and then i drove on to the garage area and james hilton was cooking hamburgers on a two dollar
1: portable grill and gave me a hamburger yeah. so all downhill from there a question i had that come to mind when you're talking about david pearson you know he he was a walk up to him and say was the car tight is it loose what do we need to do i said, oh it's okay i got it and did you experience some of that when you did interviews with him and how how was that how was he to interview?
3: He was, uh, yeah, he was like, you say, typically a man of few words, but the way to, the way to get Pearson to talk was to sit with him for a while and get him going about some topic, some, something that was funny or, or some experience he'd had with another driver. And he would eventually loosen up and start laughing and remembering things. And it wasn't easy with him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I agree. But, but, once you got to know him and he trusted you and all, um, and had time to to talk, I've been to his house many times and, and just had great interviews there with no distractions, nobody else around. Um, yeah. and, and, and he was, he was good when you could get him in that situation. He, he was, he was a good
1: interview. You know, one of the things I, I thought was really cool and you know, way more about this than I do, but, the fact that I, if I'm telling this correctly, didn't he have a building sort of like an old country store that he kept all of his trophies in? Wasn't it sort of like that? I mean, tell him, tell me a lot more about that.
3: Yeah, he he lived in a in a very modest ranch style home, uh, sort of out in the country outside Spartanburg, um, and a country store that hadn't been used, I guess, in decades. Sort of across the street from his house became available and, and he got it. Um, and that's where he started putting putting all his trophies, um, including the, the Daytona 500 trophy from 1976. So I went in there with him one day and, uh, you know, the place, the place is full of trophies and plaques and everything you can imagine, but it wasn't kept up very well, dust all over everything. And, and you know, he, Pearson wasn't the kind of guy to keep up a place like that. And I said, well, what about the 76 Daytona 500 trophy? Surely you have that somewhere at home in a case or, you know, some. No, no, let's see. It's over here somewhere. It's over here somewhere. <laughs> and and he found it and it was covered with dust too. <laughs> yeah. um, he He wasn't that big on that kind of stuff, but he did, you know, he did keep it. Let's say he did keep it. I think he gave some stuff to his, to his boys over the years. Um, mm-hmm. but in, in a lot of ways, a uh, a very simple guy, you know, he, he, he did not drink, uh, in part, he said because it was too expensive and he didn't need to waste his money doing that. Uh, he did smoke for a long time, including while he was in the race car on the track at 200 miles per hour. Yeah. Um, but, um, very 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 close to his money
1: <laughs> over yeah.
3: the years he, he invested a lot in real estate in and around Spartanburg and, and did very well with that um he, he didn't you know he didn't buy yachts and uh, apartments in New York City or anything like that he was he was just a local guy He
1: he was probably pretty happy that rj reynolds came in in 1971 to sponsor the series they they did give out quite a few free cigarettes so it probably helped his budget tremendously not having to go down to down the street to buy cigarettes but and and correct me if i'm wrong but i think i'm pretty sure about this that i think his his car was the only car in nascar's history that had a cigarette lighter in it as far as the 21 pro car other than I'm not sure about that. I started to say Dick Trickle's car. I know that Dick Trickle drilled a hole in his full face helmet so he could, you know, stick the cigarette through it and light it. But now he could have had a, a lighter in his suit pocket, but I'm pretty sure or driver's suit pocket. But I'm pretty sure Pearson's car was the only one that had a cigarette lighter. And that's the only thing that he required of Leonard Wood. Uh he said, I gotta have a cigarette lighter in that 21 car.
3: Yeah. Um and and I, I didn't keep up with the totals, but I'm pretty sure that Trickle smoked a lot more than than, than Pearson. Trickle <laughs> was pretty much devoted to it. Um, yeah. I don't know about whether or not Trickle smoked a lot actually in the car. Uh, David did, he, particularly during caution periods, but also, you know, during green flag periods at at, at Daytona. You know, I, I've had other drivers tell me they would they would look over and Pearson would be passing them on the backstretch at Daytona with a cigarette in his mouth. You know.
1: <laughs> so uh, cool. You know, he open, open helmet days, open face helmet days.
3: Yeah. Yeah. He eventually gave that up, but you know, it, it just underlined his identity sort of as the Steve McQueen of the garage, just super uh, cool. You know, you're not, you're not going to phase me.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, is there any other drivers, or excuse me, are there any other drivers uh from the 70s that you had a close relationship with? I mean, when you said something about David Pearson not really being very vocal, I remember Kale Yarborough, you could walk up to Kale and say, Kale, how's the car running, say at Darlington, whatever. Oh, the car's running pretty good. And then you say, Kale, can you elaborate on that a little bit? the car is running really, really pretty good. I mean, he just, he was that way too. He didn't, he was very close to the vest. It didn't tell you a lot and did a lot of his talking on the track, just like David. Do you agree with that? Was the first kill? Yeah,
3: very much so. Um, They, Carol and David were both uh, quite unlike Richard Petty, who famously signed every autograph and answered every media question and went out of his way to be the guy. But David was was pretty shy around people he didn't know. I think Kale was so focused on the racing that he considered everything else not that important. Um, But but again, like David, if you got him in a good situation in a one-on-one situation, I went to his house several times and set around his little pond out there with him, and and you know you got great stuff in those situations. Most of the fans didn't see that like they did with Richard Petty because those guys just weren't out there like like Richard was. And I think in a way, I know I know David did. They kind of came to regret that they did not try to be out there more than they did early in their careers because they could look back and see what it got. Richard, Richard Petty, I mean, you know, he's 85 now, and he's still the ambassador for, for stock car racing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you know, they were just small-town country guys who, who had no real experience in dealing with the bigger world, and, and they kind of had to learn it along mm-hmm. the way. I, I,
1: one more here, and I'll turn it back over to Jerry, but I do know of Jeff Hammond telling me this story where, they uh, of course had the two A radios and they kept hearing this hum in the radio, and they just went through it. The, the radio guy went through it, went through it, went through it, just could not figure out what the hum was. And it's talking about Kale here. And you know, they finally determined that Kale kept slipping his thumb over this button and the, the talk button. And it was like, mm. Well, it was Kale, it wasn't the radio, <laughs> and it was so determined. To get the the, uh, the car through the turns, and of course we've all seen the video of when he was back driving for Junior Johnson and Holly Farms. He's like taking the car around Darlington. He's the thing. He's all over the place in the seat, and he's alluding to the fact that it's he. It doesn't really say it, but he's alluding to the fact that this is one of the best cars he's ever had at Darlington, and he's just beating and banging himself all over in the seat. And it's like, good lord, I'd hate to see a car that doesn't handle well around Darlington in the 70s and these cars were the big monte carlos and the big dodges and the big uh the big fords and it's like nothing like what we have today where you see a, a an in-car camera and you see a driver you know in a cocoon of a seat and he's just you know barely turning the wheel back in those days they would even fashion their own steering wheels bigger than what would come in a regular car of course and they did that so they could, we have just manhandle these cars around say Darlington or say Daytona or Michigan or wherever. And if you looked at those guys, the, the forearms on these guys were like Popeye because they were just trying to manhandle these cars. And this is before power steering. And so, so kale was very much that way too. But I, I remember J- Hammond telling me about how we went through this thing and went through this thing, trying to figure out what is that hum? Well, it was kale. You know, he was actually, you know, grinding his teeth and trying to get a car through the turns, but Kale was one of those guys, according to what Wilson, that he didn't know a lot about cars. He, he just would leave notes in the seat saying it's doing this or doing that and didn't really know how to correct it himself. And he was trying to convey what he, what he thought was wrong with the car. And, you know, he would admit, I just, I don't know, but give me a 10th place car and I'll try to win with it. That was his mentality, but he was a tough little race car driver. And of course he won 83 races and championships in 76 77 78 for junior johnson the first guy to do three in a row and he was just tough i mean you know I recently wrote an article about how he got struck by lightning twice and and how he was he jumped in a pond as a teenager thinking it was a log in the water and it ended up being an alligator so he had to wrestle that thing to the shore so they could beat it with sticks and you know he got hit by lightning and you know so driving 200 miles an hour on sunday that's no big deal you know i've done that <laughs> look at all the other things i've done crashed an airplane twice so i mean you know that was just kale so you know but you we've all had relationships with him and david and richard and and you know talking about bobby allison too i mean bobby and donnie tough as nails right just tough tough race drivers
3: yeah uh, uh people have always asked me who's the best driver. And, and depending on what day it is, I can come up with five or six different names. (laughs) Uh, I remember one thing about Bobby. He, he racked on the backstretch at Rockingham back in the seventies. I think
1: 76 March of 76. Yeah.
3: Got upside down, flew through the air and and all that. And uh, some of the glass got in his eyes. He had to have that removed but his first comment was "The car just didn't handle worth a damn when he got up there. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to mention that Kale, uh of all the great drivers. And he certainly is in that group. He probably was the one who, who knew the least about a race car, you mm-hmm. know, the setup and, and all the innards and outwards of the car. Um, but he could take a fifth place car and win with it. And I would not ever bet against him on the last lap if if he's in a group of two or three with a chance to win. The the one big exception to that was when Richard beat him for that 200 win at Daytona, but that was by that was by a few inches. But at the end of a 500 mile race at Darlington on a on a 90 90 95 degree day he was as sharp on that last lap as the first lap.
2: Right. Mike, you know, when you came into the sport in 75, um, it was the third year, fourth year, I think it was, um, of Bill France Jr.'s, um, uh, you know, he took over from his father, Bill France Sr. in 72. What kind of a, um, what do you remember so much about Bill France Jr.? And what kind of a guy was he both in front of the microphone, you know, in terms of you interviewing him? And then what was he like? away from the microphone, just, you know, socially, uh, you know, do you hang out with them. I mean, what kind of guy was he in, in your estimation?
3: There was a big contrast between, uh, a junior and his dad. Um, I was, um, Bill senior hung around even after he retired, he was at the racetrack a fair amount. Uh, it wasn't as involved as he was when he was, when he was the big dog, but he was around. So I was around him a little bit. And, he was the, the the star of the show anywhere he was. If he was at a function, a party or whatever, I remember going to some kind of party uh, during Daytona 500 Week. It was at the top of one of the bank buildings in Daytona Beach. I guess it was a NASCAR party. And he was there, and it's a pretty big room. And he was in the center of the room, and there must have been 20 people just circled around him listening to him talk loudly about you know whatever whatever it was. I mean he, he was just a magnet for that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Bill Jr., no. You know, he, he was not that that outfront guy. Uh, but he was meticulous about details, um, knew everything that had to be known and more about uh, speedway <clears throat> organization and function. I remember him in a conversation with with Jim Hunter, one of his longtime lieutenants, when when Hunter was the president of Darlington, and Jim was kind of bragging to him about that he had done a lot of research about what might happen at the Speedway if there came a a six-inch rain the night before the race. And Bill told Hunter, well, that's great, but what happens if they're eight inches? (laughs) <laughs> you got to know that too, um, and, and he—I suspect he probably did. He had a book in his office uh, in, in his later years. Uh, How to build uh, an atomic bomb, I think, was the title. I'm presuming he didn't get started on that that particular project, but he was interested in everything, and uh, and knew a lot about everything. Uh, you know, it's, it's often said that journalists know a little bit about everything. Well, he knew a lot, he knew a lot about a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. he was um he was forceful when it came time for that uh one year at atlanta there was a tremendous scoring controversy after the race um richard petty won it and uh then they the gave uh um uh, the win to donnie allison after a agonizing hours-long check recheck of the scorecards and. Um, He later admitted it was one of the biggest scoring screw-ups that that NASCAR had ever had. Um, He didn't particularly like to hang around with the media, but to his credit, when something went wrong, like that scoring mishap, and there was a, a similar one at Rockingham one year, he would come forward and straighten it out and address what happened. Uh, he didn't want to hang around in the media center or the press box too long, but he would come in and say, okay, this happened. We did X, Y, Z to fix it. And that's where it stands. And, and he would leave. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he, it, it wasn't the kind of guy that you go out to dinner with. Um, uh, I interviewed him a lot, but I, I don't ever remember being in a social kind of situation with him. Other than at like a NASCAR function where we might have sat together for dinner, you know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. But uh yeah, he was he was he was detailed and focused on what he was doing.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, the the one thing that I was impressed about with Bill France Jr. was the fact, and I I think I wanted to see if you agree with this, it took an act of Congress to get NASCAR to make a rule change in the in the seventies and eighties, at least in my opinion, where I think today they you see a lot of change, but back then it, you did not see change. I mean, it, if there was going to be a change and you heard something about it in March, you wouldn't see the change until November of the next year under Bill French jr. Where today it seems like change to me is done a lot more. Do you agree or disagree?
3: Pretty much. Yeah. He, he wouldn't, he would not let the manufacturers or, or, or the team owners push him around uh he he kept up with how things were and when he figured out okay at some point yes we need to add spoiler to the fords or whatever he would do that but but uh uh, you know both you guys remember the period the period when when the manufacturers would pick out a driver to be their hitman as far as the one who complained about engines or spoilers or or you know the front part of the car being too big or whatever mm-hmm. and and you go to the track one week and and whoever that driver was would would be available to tell you that you know we we just can't win under these rules something has to happen yeah. he rarely listened to that kind of stuff mm-hmm. you know he yes. was smart enough about the cars i, I don't think he was really a 100 uh, percent car engineer kind of person but he knew enough about them and knew enough people to advise them about them to make the right decisions and, and not flip-flop every other week on
1: rules like that. Yeah, yeah. Now, one, one story or one, one period comes to mind, which is 1981, when Harry Rainier, Waddell Wilson, Bobby Allison came out with that Pontiac Lamonts. And Bobby ran it in, in the Daytona 500. And, and the a quick backstory to that it's it was in the rule book and the way bobby allison told me was that they were studying the what kind of car they wanted to run for 81 and then davy allison comes in the house and said dad i've got something to tell you and show you so they went down to a dealership in birmingham and looked at the Mans on the showroom floor and they said, great, well, what are you showing me this for? So, because it's in the rule book and it says it's legal and nobody's discovered it. So Davey was the one who discovered it. So they call Waddell and they call Harry and Rainier and they fly to Charlotte and they look at another one and so they can see it. And lo and behold, they show up with it and everybody goes bananas in the garage area, but like, well, what are you getting upset about? It's in the rule book. So they had to go back and make templates for it. And, but, you know, by, I can't remember, by Atlanta seemed like a couple of weeks later or three, then it was pretty much legislated out because it was too good of a car. And that's one time that I could remember, there might've been others, but there's one time I can remember when Bill Francis Jr. Had to make a change or everybody in the garage is going to start a bonfire because no one else was ready to, you know, to to compete against the car in other words the car was so good they had to do something so I, if i'm not telling it incorrectly it seemed like they kept lowering the spoiler heights on the car to the point where they couldn't control it on the racetrack and they legislated it out but then they they finagle around where they still ran the car in 82 83 84 i if you remember tim richmond drove it for uh blue max racing i believe in up through like 84 or something and then finally it was legislated out completely but that was one of those times when they had to make a quick change but for the most part i don't remember bill france making changes uh you know something going on in february and by march or april something else got changed so that's one of those rare times but uh yeah i agree with everything you said about about Bill france jr mike because he he just really had his thumb on on the pulse of the sport and everything that was going on and he, he might have not have, you might not have thought he had his eye on the ball, but he really knew everything that was going on. I mean, the number of seats that were being sold and the white lines on the track and how many hot dogs were being sold at March. I mean, he knew everything he knew it all. And he really was on top of, of his game, uh, throughout the time he was president and CEO of NASCAR.
3: Yeah. And his approach, that was another difference between, uh, between junior and senior um senior was much more likely to make a big decision really quick and just say that's not going to happen you know don't bring that back next week we're not going to do that um uh, you know the, the the dodge hemi engine was was well one of the things that plagued him for some time until he eventually legislated legislated that engine out of the sport which which probably should have happened because it was so much better, but it it also resulted in the demise of the, of the winged cars, uh, the Superbirds, and the Dodge, uh, the Dodge uh, Daytonas, I guess, which were great, beautiful Mm -hmm. (laughs) race cars. You look at the models of those today and the remaining ones of them, and they're just, just tremendously exciting sitting still. Um, But yeah, junior, senior, very different, on how they approach things like that, senior was much more of the, of the, of the. I'm in charge. uh By the way, I have a pistol, and this <laughs> is the way it's going to be. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Well, let me let me throw one more at you, and I'll, I'll turn this back over to Jerry. But uh, and I apologize, I'm throwing you on, on, you know, on the spot here. But is there a driver from the '70s, '80s that you just really enjoyed when you got the chance to go talk to him? somebody that you just really enjoyed going to talk to, is there anybody, I'm sorry, I'm doing this to you because I hate when people do it to me this way, but anybody that you just really enjoyed, it's like, oh crap, this is going to be fun. I I get to go talk to this person.
3: Well, Richard Petty is kind of at the top of almost everybody's list there, but looking at other people, um, I'll throw you out a car owner. Mm-hmm. uh junie dunleavy mm-hmm. oh yeah on, yeah perfect on, on any number of occasions uh, dur- during a certain period you had richard petty david pearson bobby Allison, and kelly yarborough and that was kind of it they're winning those guys are winning everything it seemed like and eventually you wound up running out of angles to write about those people and I remember wandering around garage areas thinking, what, what am I going to do today? And Junie was always the fallback guy.
1: You yeah, know. I agree. You totally. go
3: sit with him at the back of his hauler and yeah. just get wonderful stuff uh, about the old days. And he was so, so patient and, and he knew exactly the kind of stuff he wanted. Um, A, a driver like that from a, a little later on, I guess, would be Rick Mast rick Mm -hmm. didn't didn't do really well um but he was smart still is still is very smart he could give you angles on stories that you hadn't even thought about um so you know one of the one of the uh not one of the superstars but but a great guy to talk to and to talk to about other drivers and and things that were going on that you might not know about
2: you know mike you you kind of led me into my next question about you know not necessarily a superstar not you know but somebody that people would like to talk to this is kind of an off the wall question uh but you know um I remember we were on one of those, uh, I'm sure you and Ben both remember, you used to have these tours uh, during speed weeks where we'd get on a bus and we'd go like to various locations around the Daytona area, you know, that this is where this place was at in history, or, you know, here's the uh, uh, the hotel where NASCAR was founded, things like that. And I remember one of the conversations, uh, I, I want to say, was Junior Johnson said it? I may be wrong on that, but he was on the, the bus that I was on this one time. And he was talking about Bill France Jr., and you know the the conversation was that you know bill france junior surrounded himself uh, with a very small core of very loyal individuals mike helton uh, jim hunter but the one name that came out was uh, as as uh, and again i think it was junior i may be wrong i apologize if i am but I, somebody said that the person behind bill france who actually Told Bill France where to go, and he did it. <laughs> he he had to listen. Was Betty Jane France, and you know she was always Bill's sounding black. She was always Bill's uh, ear. She you know gave him a lot of good advice, but she was always in the background. She was a humanitarian. She you know she did a lot of um, you know good for the sport. You know started the NASCAR Foundation, etc. But Betty Jane France did a lot uh, to help build the sport as well, too, just by giving Bill France Jr. Um, you know his support, but also giving him a lot of ideas as well too. Did, did you have a lot of interaction with Betty Jane, uh,
3: you know, during your time uh, covering the sport then back then? Not a lot. Um, you know, occasionally at 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 uh, functions or whatever, uh, I talked some with her, but, but she didn't really seek out the media <laughs> a lot. Uh, one of the best stories about her. Uh, was, uh, the Francis built a what can only be described as a mansion on the Halifax river in Daytona. And Bill Jr. told me, uh, yeah, I I gave her an unlimited budget and she ran over it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I think they had a really good relationship. Uh, they, uh, you didn't see them together a lot at the track, but while, while Bill was in Daytona, uh, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, they would go out to dinner a lot. One particular place in, in Ormond Beach, uh, they went a lot, and you know, had the same table reserved all the time. And I talked to some people there who ate with them a lot, and um, they they would mention that that Bill really enjoyed that because he was not he was just a guy there. He was mm-hmm. not in the spotlight, and he really enjoyed going there with Betty Jane and and listening to her talk about stuff she was doing in Daytona. You know, she was involved in a lot of, a lot of uh, like you mentioned, charity uh, events and, and uh, just things at school with the kids and stuff like that. And that was his time to sit with her and just listen to what she was about, you know, what she was doing. And uh, they would tell me that, that he would get really amused at some of her stories and, and uh, they they rarely heard him laugh a lot but that on those occasions uh he did so i mm-hmm. I, I think they were they were really a really a close couple
1: yeah before. exactly you know um mike you were talking a little bit ago about junior donnelly i want to share one but we to, i don't know if you would ever heard this story real quick but this is 1970 at richmond you know he was from richmond virginia at the old richmond fairgrounds track and Fred Lorenzen had retired from racing in 64 but he decided to come back and try some races and then eventually got out of the sport in 72 but this happened in 1970 and Fred was driving Junie's number 90 uh, Ford and so this is Saturday afternoon before the race on Sunday and Fred says well here's the, here's the way it is you know Fred was taught kind of fast and he's from Chicago and of course, Ginny had that the kind of a Virginia draw, you know, the way he talked and very distinct Virginia accent. And so phrase like, well, here's the deal, Genie. This what need to do. You're just talking kind of fast. And again, this is Saturday afternoon before the Sunday race. He says, Okay, here's the deal, Jeannie. said if we spend a hundred thousand dollars on this car this afternoon, you know, we can win this race tomorrow. Okay, so <laughs> it's so it's like, or he said, we just leave the car along We we'll finish fourth. And he was like, well, here's the deal. Fred says, so and, and keep in mind, Jenny didn't have a lot of money. He was you know, on a shoestring. So he said, well, here's the deal. Fred said, since it's so late in the day, <laughs> it's only because it's so late in the day. I think we'll just shoot for finishing fourth. He didn't have a hundred thousand dollars as it turned out. lo and behold, the next day, Fred finished fourth in the race. But it was so funny because he said, Well, since just because it's so late in the day, I'll save a hundred thousand dollars. And uh as it turned out, he finishes fourth and they go on their separate ways. But Jeannie was, you're right. I would I had the same experience you did because if anytime we're at the Richmond track, the old track or the new track. Uh, as I've said on the podcast before I'd walk up and junior would be sitting at the back of that number 90 holler and he'd see me and say, and I'd never forget the way he'd say it said, Mr. White, Mr. White. And I'd sit down on those director chairs. Uh, and he, we sit there and we would talk a lot of times it'd be about everything but racing, but then sometimes I'd toss in a question or two or three, but such an amazing man. I mean, I just loved Junior to death. He was so great and he had been there and believe it or not, he, had car two cars i think in the 1950 southern 500 and of course we've told the stories about how they would take car the tires and wheels off the cars in the infield and put them on their cars and either leave money or leave a note saying we'll be we'll bring your tires back after we run 50 laps or whatever and uh that went on during that first race but uh he said we weren't trying to steal the tires we're just borrowing the tires and <laughs> so he Put cinder blocks under pupils, passenger cars, and and run them on the track, and then put them back. But yeah, Ginny was oh gosh, what a gentleman. He just a great guy. But that that Richmond the afternoon, he, knowing there's no way Ginny had a hundred thousand dollars in 1970. I mean, there's his whole operation. He couldn't cough up a hundred thousand probably ever, especially in '70. But you know, Fred was like all about winning and all about. Perfect cars because, of course, he drove for home to moody, and he won a lot of races 26 races, actually. But Ginny never got upset. You know, I'm sure Mike, you've heard the story about uh, uh, Dick Brooks uh, on, at Talladega radioed back to Ginny and says, You know, these tires are terrible. What's the deal? These tires are all over the place. I can't drive this thing in a 40 acre field. And Ginny waits about 10 seconds, keys the mic, and says, Well, I don't know what you're complaining about. Kel, we all were around those things for the last 60 laps and they were perfect for him. (laughs) (laughs) So Judy was never, no, Judy never got upset about anything. He was so much fun. I
3: have to throw in one Dick Brooks story. Now that you mentioned him, one one of the all time great characters in NASCAR, of course, he, uh, he, some background, he, he, he wrecked a lot of cars over the years, um. He also crashed an airplane on landing strip behind his house near Spartanburg, Mm -hmm. Um, and he was in a really bad motorcycle accident. Um, sometime after that, he mentioned to me that, yeah, now I've crashed everything except a train. So, (laughs) (laughs) but he was in the hospital after the motorcycle wreck for, for quite some time, had some pretty, pretty bad injuries. And he, he and David Pearson were pretty big buddies. So, after a week or two, Pearson goes to the hospital to, to see him and walks in the room and, and uh, well, how are you doing, Dick? And he said, Brooks said, well, I'm doing doing pretty well, doing, going through the rehab and stuff now. And um, my, my doc says, if I keep up the rehab after I get out of the hospital, that that I'll be back uh, 90%. And Pearson said, well, hell, Brooks, that's better than you were
1: before. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, I, I, a quick Brooks story for you at Martinsville one time back when Pearson was driving the Perler Mercury for the Wood Brothers, and he didn't go to Martinsville. Pearson didn't go to Martinsville very much, but this particular race, they were there. I believe it was seventy-two or seventy-three. uh He felt Pearson felt sick in the car, and so Pier, Brooks had already fallen out or whatever. So they got Brooks to come and. A relief drive for Pearson and Pearson got out of the car and, you know, before Brooks got in and very quickly jumped in the car and said, yeah, I'm just not feeling good. I'm not feeling good. So Brooks gets in the car and he said, yeah, I'll drive the Perlator Mercury. That's a great car. I'd love to drive it. So he did. And so back in those days, they didn't have a tunnel and like they do now at Martinsville. And so they're under caution and, and they're kind of circling the track and waiting on to clean the caution or whatever it, Brooks looks up and said, Well, lo and behold, there's there's Pearson. And he's he's crossing the track and he's smiling real big and he gives him a big wave. And so oh, dang, he don't look sick at all. <laughs> he just wanted to go home. <laughs> <laughs> so he just waves and thanks for the help and waves a big grin on his face and trots, trots across the track and takes off and gets in his car. And I'm like, well, dang, uh, you know, he said he was sick. He's not sick. So anyway, that's another Brooks story.
3: Pearson, uh, Dale Earnhardt Sr., and Bud Moore, my all-time top three people who knew how to get out of a track after a race really, really fast.
2: Mm-hmm. Were, yeah.
3: Bud Very was, nice. Bud was, he was insanely precise about what route he was going to take. Uh, hated the traffic. When you're at Darlington, he, you know, he always drove his big Lincoln Town car down there parked in the infield behind the garage. And uh, before the race, a couple of his crew guys went out to the car and barely jacked up the rear wheels. And you couldn't <laughs> tell if they were off the ground, but they were. That's too funny. Right after the race, Bud runs out of the car and <laughs> trying to beat people out and guns it. And, of course, it goes nowhere. You know, the <laughs> wheels just spinning like crazy. <laughs> That's too so. funny. You rarely got more on a joke like that, but that was one of the times they really got him.
1: Oh my gosh, that's too funny! Oh man. Well, Mike, yeah, and that's the good time. See, that's what I think. That's what we're kind of missing in today's world. We, there was so many funny stories like that that, you know, there's it, thousands of them. But we, we need more of that. We need right. more of that. Yeah. Mike. Uh, Mike, if, if you were to write a book about
2: your life. What's your favorite story? What's the biggest thing that ha- happened to you that is your all-time number one on your list of the greatest thing that ever happened to Mike Embry?
1: it on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it has to be that.
3: Well, you you know, uh, you, you got to get past having the three kids and all that. Obviously, that's a highlight for everybody. Um uh, it's, um, it's it's pretty clear in my case, um, the writer Tom Wolf, um, my writing hero since I picked up a magazine and started reading his stories uh, long ago. And of course, he wrote the uh, 1965 Esquire magazine piece about Junior Johnson that that sort of gave NASCAR a, a kind of national uh, place that it never had before and it's still recognized as one of the great magazine long form pieces of all time. Um, when I was working with NASCAR scene, we were coming up on the 40th anniversary of that. And I mentioned to the editors, Hey, it'd be a great story if we could get Tom Wolfe to talk about his experience with Junior Johnson doing, doing that piece. And, um, never thinking that it would happen I called the, the the PR people at his publishing house asked if it would be possible to interview him about that and they called me back the next day and said yeah he's you know he's willing to do it just show up at his Central Park New York apartment x time and and there you yeah. are and I did and he was great um, and that that story turned out I think pretty well the one of the toughest, things i've ever done was to leave his apartment that day and not get a photo of me and him together Mm. uh you know professionalism reigns so i I didn't do Mm -hmm. it but that was that was great fun one of the certainly the highlight of my career was was doing that yeah
1: right well i you what i you know i've had the honor of working with my uh, back when we both worked with NASCAR scene and illustrate, I was on the illustrated side, Michael on the scene side, and I gotta tell you, I'm, I'm not telling you this just because he's on the podcast. I'm telling you this because I mean it from the heart, uh, just one of the greatest writers in, in NASCAR history in my book. And spent a lot of years reading his work and trying to maybe mimic that a little bit, learning some things from, from somebody I really have a great deal of respect for and just and also he wrote for nascar illustrated a lot of times writing together on some things and working side by side for a lot of years on that so just one of my heroes mike hambray and i appreciate working with you for many many years i mean that from the heart exactly yeah thank
3: you Ben. that was that was great fun those seven or eight years when when we were there together at seam I, i think we put out a tremendous publication uh which was very good, I think, till the very end. You know, it mm-hmm. it had to end under some bad circumstances, but uh, I think for the the period when it was really good, it was it was a, a fine publication. Uh, a lot of a lot of great people uh, came through there, not just great journalists, but great mm-hmm. people. Period. Yeah, we, sure. we had we had a staff there that was just just tremendous. You know, everybody worked together well and would help each other out and, and we had a great time doing it. It was a, it was a good place to be.
1: Exactly. It sure was. Yeah. Sure well, was.
2: Mike and Ben, uh, before we wrap up today, Ben, as we always do on uh, each episode of the uh, lifetime of, of a lifetime in NASCAR podcast, we always equate the episode number with a car number. And this is obviously episode number 74 of a lifetime in NASCAR podcast. So Ben, uh, the honor is as always is yours. Tell us about the car number seventy four that equates with this uh, uh, this episode of the of the Lifetime of NASCAR podcast. Tell us about this number seventy four, and then we'll let uh, Mike uh, go, and uh, we'll go from there. Then, so, but uh, yeah, tell us about number seventy four in the history in NASCAR racing.
1: Okay, well, I sure will, Jerry. And you know, as you know, for a lot of years we've had these particular t- uh, numbers come up, and sometimes the we have winners sometimes we don't have winners and um i'm trying to find my notes here i might have to i guess i'm gonna have to defer to you my friend yeah i've got i've got in from you yeah i mean i can that's yeah, from because yeah. i'm just not seeing where it's coming up so i gotta i gotta get a relief driver on this no one. worries Sorry. no
2: worries no worries well the number 74 <clears throat> excuse me it made 469 starts in its in its lifetime. Zero wins, seven top fives, 73 top tens, and zero polls. The first start was by Paul Stanley. And that's, no, that's not Paul Stanley from Kiss. I know somebody's going to probably say, oh, Paul Stanley drove an NASCAR car? No, that was Paul Stanley at North Wilkesboro Speedway. The Wilkes County 150 on Sunday, April 29th, Uh, 1951 it was race number seven of the 1951 nascar grand national series and ld austin was the most prominent user of the number 74 in the late 1950s and early 1960s and also a very prominent uh, name that uh, drove that car uh, that kind of followed ld austin was bobby waywalk who drove the 74 in the 1960s 1970s and the 1980s and one bit of uh, more recent trivia if you will the last individual uh, the last two individuals that drove the uh, number 74 Stacy Compton drove it in 2012 then it wasn't used until 2020 for two races ironically enough uh at Michigan International Speedway both times by Reed Sorensen. so that was uh, the car number 74 has yet to reach victory lane maybe one of these days it will reach victory lane but uh, you know uh, as as always we you know, we, we always enjoyed uh, talking about the car number, but we also definitely enjoyed talking to Mike Embry of NBC and the co-author of a brand new book. definitely go out there and get it. You're going to love it. It's called 50 first victories by uh, co authored by Mike Embry and L Pierce, Mike, uh, any, any closing thoughts uh, about the book, about uh, you know, what you're working on, anything that's uh, you want
3: the, the listeners to, to know about or hear. I think we should get Kyle Bush in that 74 car and that way, We'll finally get a win.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I think that all the money that we're making in this business, all three of us, we can call, you know, all three of us team up and start a team, get number seventy-four, Kyle Bush, unlimited budget. We'll start for twenty twenty-three as a team owners. What do you think? I like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I got we'll- ten bucks in my pocket right now. Yeah. And those cars I heard are costing like 475,000 a piece. We'll just get 10 of them oh, you there you go. or go buy maybe just go buy a house at the lake, like one house. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Not well, buy with, any cars. Right.
2: Well, with that, too, we're going to put in a uh, uh, 30 and in, in journalism terms, that's the, that's indicates the yeah. end. We're going to put number 30 on this episode of a lifetime in the NASCAR podcast, episode number 74 Again, I want to thank Mike Embry of NBCSports.com and also, again, his uh, brand new book called Fifty First Victories by Mike Embry and uh, L Pierce, his co-writer, uh, or co-authors, rather. And uh, you can get that at OctanePress.com or wherever great books are sold. You know, try Amazon, uh, Barnes Noble, any major bookseller uh, I'm sure will be carrying that book. Uh, if not, you go up to the front desk and demand, say, I want my copy of Fifty First Victories by Mike Embry and Al Pierce. All right, so for uh, Mike Embry, uh, again, thanks ever so much for joining us. And for Ben White, my partner in crime, I'm Jerry Bunkowski. Thank you ever so much for joining us on a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. We'll be back next week right here on episode number 75 of a Lifetime NASCAR podcast. Have a great weekend, everyone. We'll talk to you soon. Take care now.